So again, I just remembered, I had totally forgotten. We were a site for this and I was listed as a co-investigator, but uh, actually... (laughs) Totally legit. That's not suspicious at all. I just remembered I'm a co-investigator. I do that all the time. I haven't even read the paper yet. (laughs) So Matt has no conflicts of interest. No interest, in fact. That's what he really has. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk to your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello. My name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have four members of the Filtrate plus a couple of special guests. Dr. Vandana Nair, Professor of Medicine at Emory, please introduce yourself. Hi, thanks for having me. This is Vandana Nair, and I am a Professor of Medicine at Emory Nephrology. And I'm very interested in dialysis, vascular access, and uh, ultrasonography, and um, very interested in the field of interventional nephrology. Do you wear lead at work? When I'm doing procedures, yes, absolutely. And aren't you also the president of something? I'm the president-elect of ASDIN. And by the way, my red lead, when I used to wear it, had red sparkles. Just Red <laughs> sparkles, excellent, excellent. When do you become the active acting president? Uh, fe- uh, February 2022. Oh, okay, nice, excellent. And we also have uh, Dr. Sophie Ambruso, a nephrologist at the University of Colorado. Why don't you introduce yourself, Sophie? Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm a clinical nephrologist and assistant professor at the University of Colorado. Um, I am currently hiding in the basement of a vacation place with my family and friends, hoping my kids don't pop in naked after bath time. That's an undisclosed location? (laughs) (laughs) To who? To you guys or to them? (laughs) Okay, thank you for coming. Uh, And we have the filtrate. Swapnel? Hi, I'm Swapnil Hiramad. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H Swapnil, and uh, I don't have any conflicts uh, except for being a champion of lines. Samira. Sorry, no. What does that mean, champion of lines? Uh, just he doesn't mean... buy this fistula first BS. Exactly. What he's saying. Exactly. He says permacath for everybody. Exactly. Start off. Hi everyone, I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. I tweet at SS Farouk. And Matt? Hi everyone, this is Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. Dialysis and nephrology go together like Netflix and chill. But the weak link in dialysis has always been access. Uh, Current best practices for hemodialysis access is an AV fistula but these are plagued with low maturation rates for new access and then an unfortunately high rate of secondary failure with vascular stenosis causing low blood flows leading to inadequate dialysis. The standard of care here is endovascular repair with balloon angioplasty, but this often results in further problems with 50% of patients requiring repeat intervention in the next six months. Today's study looks at improving those numbers by using a balloon coated with paclitaxel crystals to prevent smooth muscle remodeling, hyperplasia, and restenosis. And, you know, it's pretty interesting. We don't often see vascular access research make it to the New England Journal of Medicine, so it's pretty exciting when it does. Um, so I think we're going to start with uh, Sophie. You're going to talk about the methods here? Yep. Um, titillating stuff. This study was a prospective, global, multicenter, single-blinded, one-to-one, randomized controlled trial that's comparing outcomes between the drug-coated balloon and standard non-drug-coated balloons in the treatment of new, meaning not previously treated, or non-stinted resynodic AV fistula lesions. Um, and just to point out, this is up to like 100 millimeters in length. Um, so there were 29 sites involved. So uh, hold on, uh, Vendana, is that a big stenosis, 100 millimeters, that doesn't mean anything to me. Can you give me a sense? Is that big, small, medium? What are we talking about there? So that is big. So 100 millimeters would be a 10 centimeter stenosis, which would be, you know, a little bit bigger than this. And typically... This is a podcast, okay? When you do this, (laughs) nobody knows what you're talking about. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. 
<laughs> so, um, okay, well, yes, I think that's a pretty big stenosis. And when you're looking at um, lesions, what you want to do is actually use the angioplasty balloon for just the amount of the stenosis. You really don't want to angioplasty the healthy vessel. So when you look at the stenosis and your angioplasty balloons, you try to take one that's the exact correct diameter, but also in length. You don't want to go too long because you're just going to inflate the balloon against a healthy vessel. And that's um, really not a good thing because that in itself is going to stimulate neurointimal hypertension. So, so you can adjust the length and the diameter of the balloon? You can, you can pick the right balloon. So when we buy the balloons for our centers, we actually have different sizes, different diameters, and different lengths. Oh, I just thought they were like different colors. Like you just sort of like today's red and uh... <laughs> yeah, today's yeah, exactly. You know, match your lead. But uh, uh, no, so you actually have a lot of choice, and of course, you're limited by cost in what you can have. And so um, you pretty much have standard sizes. But once you look at the balloon and you size it up that's when you decide what balloon, uh, when you look at the lesion and size it up, that's when you decide what kind of balloon you're going to use. So when they say they do the study up to 100 millimeters, you're saying this is pretty much all comers. It, it pretty much is. Yeah. Okay. You wouldn't see, you know, that's a long lesion. And most of us would even hesitate when we think about something that's a long lesion as such is, um, you know, what are you going to get out of it when you angioplasty it? And sometimes the vein itself can be diseased along its length, at which point the interventionist may decide not to angioplasty because it might not, um, because it might be too far gone for you to get any benefit out of the angioplasty. Gotcha. Okay. Sorry about that, Sophie. You want to keep, keep going? 29 sites were involved, 204 in the U.S., 112 in Japan, and 14 in New Zealand. Um, and then it was only single-blinded just because of the macroscopic differences between the balloons. So investigators and research coordinators could not be blinded. So they were aware of the treating assignments. The inclusion criteria is that they were over 21 years of age. Uh, they were either new or non-stinted re-stenotic native, native AV fistulas. And they had to have at least 50% stenosis. How common are they- stents? Is this something that we are, people are doing commonly? I, I always hear about just plain old balloon angioplasty when it comes here. Are, we, are people doing a lot of stents for uh, AV fistulas? Uh, the FDA indication really for stents are very limited. If you have an extravasation, let's say you're doing an angioplasty and uh, the balloon ruptures and that ends up also rupturing the vessel, um, you will need a stent to actually stop the bleeding. That's an FDA-approved indication. And after um, the Haskell study that came out in the New England Journal, you can use the stents at the anastomosis as well. But typically, the role for stents is sort of limited. Once you put a stent in, you're actually putting this metal wire mesh in the vessel. And once you do that, you can't really use that part of the vessel for further um, access creation. So you don't want to use a stent unless you have to. I would say maybe six, seven years ago, we started seeing a huge uptick in stent placements by outpatient access centers, primarily because they were reimbursed very, very well. And um, we started calling the arms that we would see stentulas because we would just see maybe, you know, in each stent is around are used to be around $5,000. So if you have four stents, that's a $20,000 arm that you're looking at that you really can't use for anything else. So when we started um, having other people do our procedures for us, we really had a moratorium on stent use. And so we told the interventionists who were helping us out with our patients that if they needed to stent bar an emergency, they actually needed to break scrub and call us. And um, so we didn't want any of our patients to get um, a lot of stents. And um, that has really helped to you know, improve the longevity of the access. So yes, there are indications, but limited for the use of stents. And just to get it right, um, these are veins, right? Usually stents are meant for arteries. And my sense was that uh, stents in veins uh, only make sense in those limited settings. It's not like there is an arrowing, let's put in a stent. Is that right? Is that well, a correct way of thinking? Sort of. Doesn't a vein in a fistula arterialize, though? It, it does get arterialized, of course, but so it gets much. thicker. One of my mentors always 
would not like it if I use the word arterialize for veins, but it does uh, change. You like the word renalize. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I would say that um, stents have been used in the venous system. Like all of the work that we do um, primarily is in the venous system as compared to cardiologists who are in the arterial system. And um, stents do have a place. What about central stenosis? An area you're never going to access, but can be a real problematic mm-hmm. for using that arm. Is that, a, is that a place that you can use a stent? So definitely you can use a stent. Of course, you have to make sure that you size it very correctly because the veins get bigger as they move towards the heart. That's one. Secondly, there was, um, you know, many times you do your angiogram and when you do your angiogram thinking that you're in the access circuit that starts and ends in the heart. When you look at it and you look at the central veins, you might see a patient with central venous stenosis, but the patient is asymptomatic. So there was a beautiful paper out, I think maybe eight to 10 years ago that looked at even angioplasting asymptomatic central venous stenosis. And what they showed was that um, if you did, if you left them alone, the patients did just as well or better than if you angioplasty, because once you angioplasty, you start the process of actually causing vascular damage. So asymptomatic central venous stenosis, I wouldn't even angioplasty. And if it's symptomatic, let's like the patient has swelling or they've got SVC syndrome, I would angioplasty. The problem is that all of these then run into the risk of, you know, having to do an angioplasty every three months. Could you bypass it with a stent? Perhaps you could get longer, you know, periods of time without an intervention, but you have to really decide if you, once you use a stent, that's final. The angioplasty balloon is, is sort of a temporary um, process. Excellent. It's it's just amazing the size of my knowledge deficit in this area. I'm so happy that you're here. It really is essential. Moving on, Sophie, where, where, are, where are we? Still an inclusion criteria. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry. Less. Good stuff. Is the paper about stents or balloons? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the AV fistulas, it was required to be created at least 60 days before the index procedure. And then the AV fistula must have been used for dialysis for at least 8 to 12 sessions during a four-week period, ensuring fistula maturity. So I think that's important to just highlight that there was no primary failure in any of these. So the AV fistula did not fail to mature. Um, for exclusion criteria, uh, history or current access circuit thrombosis. History of previous stent in the arterial venous circuit, and then patients with hemodynamically significant central venous stenosis. There's actually quite a few more exclusion criteria, but I think those are probably the most important ones to highlight. But essentially what they're trying to say is that this blockage is the problem, right? That's what they're trying to zero in on is that we want to, we're only going to examine patients where we're fixing what is the problem. We don't want to have any other thing that's going to be complicating that. Are there ever patients where you think there's a stenosis and then you go in and it's not what you thought or there is a thrombosis that you didn't know about before? I mean, I think physical exam is very accurate. There was another study where they taught fellows how to do physical exams and they found an over 80% correlation between doing a good physical exam and what they found in the angio suite. And um, there are times when patients are sent to the access center because the dialysis unit has difficulty cannulating the patient, either because, um, you know, they didn't cannulate properly, or sometimes they will tell you that I get dark blood coming out of it. It's just because they're not in the vessel human. If they send a patient like that, we do a physical exam and we feel like um, this patient doesn't have anything. You still confirm it with fluoro, but you do go in and you find that um, pretty much the access might be completely all right. The advantage of having a small ultrasound at the bedside or in the dialysis unit is sometimes you can't hear it as well, especially if you have the newer grafts um, that have multiple layers. They're not as uh, easily auscultated as um, the other PTFE graphs that we used to have. You can just put the ultrasound and look for either flow or look at power Doppler and see if you have flow within the access. In spite of that, most dialysis units, uh, unfortunately, people who are doing it may not be that adequately trained. And uh, we've had patients who've come in with thrombosed accesses that have been attempted to be cannulated multiple times. And so these are the issues where you run into as an interventionist when you're trying to do a thrombectomy to make sure that all those holes are plugged because as soon as you get flow through them, 
you're just going to have um, flow come out of those needle puncher sites. And so um, pre we have what we call a modified baseball rule in our dialysis units. It's two strikes and you're out. So if you've tried twice and you don't get flow, please don't continue to try and put the needle in uh, repeatedly. It's not going to work. I will tell you, as dominant as those Braves pitchers were in the 90s, if they had a two-strike rule, they would have been even better. Can you right. imagine John Smoltz <laughs> with the two-strike rule? Oh, my God. Should we mention that this study was funded by Medtronic and one of the study authors is... A, two of the study authors, right? Two, two, of two, two. Yeah. two of them. Is that is that normal thing to have or is that abnormal? Uh, so I, I've often voiced this as a major concern, but I think it's better to be explicit, right? A, the study was done uh, to get these balloons approved. So someone has to fund it, right? Who's going to pay for these balloons? And we can talk later about the cost. So uh, it, it's obvious that a study like this will be funded by the manufacturer. And rather than have, you know, a ghostwriter behind the scenes, uh, I think it's better to have it explicit that uh, the, you know, there are authors who are from the industry who are involved and let's have it out all in the open. Uh, there's nothing wrong per se, as long as, uh, you know, the analysis is done uh, properly, uh, as long as we trust them. Uh, I, I would prefer to have them out in the open rather than, you know, behind the scene, putting the strings. I agree, but I do think that there is a certain conflict of interest. And I would like to see because we had the Teradola study um, that was published in CJSON a couple of years prior to this. And I agree that the dose was different for the Paclitaxel, but it was 2.2 versus the 3.5. But um, again, that was a negative study. Vanada, was that previous study, was that also industry-sponsored or is that not industry-sponsored? Not industry. Dr. Teradola is... Um, an interventional radiologist. I'm not quite sure I remember where he works, but um, he was one of the first people who, when nephrologists started doing these procedures, he wrote a scathing editorial and said that we as nephrologists should not be doing this and people are just going to be harmed by nephrologists doing it. And once Dr. Bethard published all the, you know, the 14,000 cases and a 96, 97% success rate with a complication rate that was like less, I think 0.01 or something. He, Teratola actually did a rebut, like he retracted what he had said. And he uh. had said that this is a great option that you guys are doing. And he's a giant in the field of radiology. Admitted that he was wrong? Yeah. And he was fantastic. I mean, it was really the, the first, when you read them, the first one was so scathing that I'm sure lesser mortals would have just um, backed off. But the when he retracted it, it was really uh, very nicely done. You know, though, if you look at the numbers in in the CJSON paper, mm -hmm. the drug coated balloon was seventy one percent, and the non coated was sixty three percent. So you wonder if it's actually just underpowered, and you know, if we, if they'd had a, had a larger population, if something would have come up positive. Interesting. How big was that study? Do you have the sense? Two hundred and eighty five patients. So close to the same two. size as this one, right? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, I would just like to see, like, I think it's great that they've been able to do this study and it's an RCT, which is really good. And these results are very encouraging, but I would just like to have some more data just to, before we start, um, you know, putting everybody on drug-coated balloons. And just to clarify, the device is now approved or not? So I think the purpose was to get approval. So I presume it's in the works right now. Okay. This, this, this okay. study will help them get it approved. Uh, the trial device, I don't know if we mentioned, but it was Medtronic. It was a drug-coated balloon impregnated with 3.5 micrograms per millimeters squared of paclitaxel. The predilation portion of the procedure, and Vandana, you might be able to speak up whenever you want. Basically, all participants underwent predilation, at least eligible participants. High-pressure balloon matching the reference of the vessel diameter, and it was one-to-one -one sizing. Whatever residual stenosis was expected, it was supposed to be no more than 30% of the vessel diameter. And then at that point, that's when patients were enrolled in the study. I just want to make understand the procedure. If this patient was not going to get a medicated balloon after that first dilation, would there be a second balloon or then I, you'd be done? You'd be done. So the, the second balloon, which is going to be either the paclitaxel or a placebo, that's not normally done. That's only done here to deliver the medicine. Exactly. And so what's the point of the pre-dilation? You know, why don't we just... That actually it? fixes the, the narrowing. Right. So... Right. That's the angioplasty, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, right, right. That's the angioplasty. 
But what I did want to talk about was paclitaxel. And I have to say, of all the capsulologies that we've done, I had the most fun reading about this one. And I had to stop myself because it was just too much time. Um, But I'll start with the mechanism of action first. Um, So paclitaxel is a binds to the beta tubulin subunit. And so tubulin molecules come together to form the microtubule, and that's necessary for movement in the cell and for, importantly, for chromosomes to move around for successful mitosis. And so unlike colchicine, which basically stops a microtubule from forming, paclitaxel is kind of like a microtubule freezer. Once they're formed, it kind of traps them. And once it binds, the microtubule can no longer grow or shrink as it likes to do. And so why that's important here is that mitosis, which is just this is a review for everyone here is a part of the eukaryotic cell cycle during which re- uh, chromosomes are replicated to form two new cells. So, so in case you're planning on taking the MCAT, <laughs> right? <laughs> We're going to go over well, mitosis. No. Actually, that, <laughs> my, my 11th grader is doing cell structure. Actually, I, that reminds <laughs> me, I wanted to mention that to learn the mechanism, I watched a really nice USMLE prep video that had awesome music <laughs> that I will include in the show notes for everyone. So anyway, so this mitosis can happen because of the um, chromosome movement. And um, so that's really the mechanism and why the balloons are coated with this to try to prevent that um, restenosis. Um, So what I found really interesting was the history of this drug. And so it was discovered in 1971, actually in in North Carolina in Research Triangle Park. And it was discovered by these two scientists and it was isolated from the bark of this tree, the Pacific U. Scientific name is Taxus brevifolia. So that's where the name Taxol comes from. And there are many other trees in this family, other U's and they also produce this taxol, but this particular species, I think, of tree produces it in the highest um, quantity, and the other one is much harder to isolate from. And so the Pacific U, it's an evergreen, and it's that evergreen that um, I think everyone has seen has those little red berries, and when you walk by it, you're always like, oh, is that the one that I'm going to die if I eat that? And this is that poisonous uh, plant. That but you won't get restenosis, which is the important thing. You will not get restenosis, <laughs> but if you... But so the... Clean vessels. <laughs> and so um, the, the poison is actually not in the berry part, but in the leaves and in the seed that the berry covers. And so if you eat that or animals eat that, they contain these taxane alkaloids, which are cardiotoxic. And so they interfere with the sodium and calcium channels of the heart and ultimately lead to um, very high um, calcium concentrations. Another like little botany lesson here, ewes are known for how long they can live. They can live um, almost up to a thousand years compared to four. 400 years for an oak, which like, that's like nothing, stupid oak tree. And so the <laughs> the reason that yew trees can live so long is really fascinating. And so they're sensitive to, because of their bark structure, they have these kind of the bark cracks very easily. And so fungus can very easily kind of go into the bark and then grow there and then kill them. And so the yew tree basically developed this compound and that compound is paclitaxel. And I just think that is so cool that somebody figured that out. Um, And so the way that you have to get the drug is you have to basically remove the bark from the tree and it's a very, it essentially kills the tree. And so this Pacific U is now a near threatened species and it has become somewhat of a kind of environmental um, concern because it's being killed to to get this drug out. And so again, you can get other similar drugs from other trees. um, But from what I read, this is kind of like the best one and the one that everybody wants. And so there's been some kind of back and forth. And there were some articles in the 90s when I think this actually made headlines. um, But I personally have not seen much about it um, recently. So um, Baclitex was very cool. So it seems like (laughs) the bark of trees is where we need to be searching for drugs. In North Carolina. It's right across did, from my house. I mean, did you know that? North, it's called the Pacific Northwest. What the hell are they doing with this in North Carolina? I don't even understand and that. They just had, they, they sent the bark over and they, you know, did this experiments here. They didn't. I feel like I've seen them in New Jersey when I was growing up, but I don't know, maybe they have some other sort of lookalike trees. But they're also called graveyard trees because they're like the tree of life because they can live so long, but then they're the tree of death because they're so poisonous. There's so much stuff about this tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can understand drug eluting stents where the drug is in the stent. So, uh, you know, the stents keep releasing it. These are just balloons, right? And the balloon goes in, the balloon goes out. How much of the drug is actually delivered into the vessel wall? I I wanted to say one thing relevant to that. Um, So there's something called an excipient that is with the drug. And so in this case, they use urea. And so urea is hydrophilic. And so it promotes more rapid drug transfer. To answer your question about how much is... To answer your actual question, I have no idea, but I just wanted to say that other piece. 
Yeah, I, I'm sure they've studied it. That's how you know it, it they must work. I, a- I brought this up during the chat, and uh, a bunch of uh, big time stenting people answered it with uh, uh, with studies to show that uh, the duration of time that the st- that the balloon is against the wall uh, is enough to have the most of the paclitaxel go into the vessel wall. So there are, I think I sent you a study that was uh, elegantly, it was like a basic science study, and they looked at all these drugs and the tissue uptake is once you inflate the balloon, there's tissue uptake, and it's actually better for paclitaxel versus the other drug that people are looking at is serolimus. And uh, the tissue uptake is, is better and lasts a little bit longer for paclitaxel as compared to serolimus. So, so the safety concern that I think we'll come to is, is it because it doesn't remain in the vessel wall and it goes elsewhere or, or where does that come from? Well, Whether it's that, right or not. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I understand this because the, another question that was raised in the chat, which I still don't have an answer to is how do you like, is this, you know, if you use the DCB four times, is there like a right. limit to when you use it? I'm not sure. Yeah, what's the quantifiable amount that you're actually denying right. to them? Well, I think the safety yeah. concern came from, they were talking about, um, it was a peripheral vascular disease, right. uh, peripheral de- de- vascular yeah. disease where they used paclitaxel stents or mm-hmm. balloon delivery and they had increased more total balloon. mortality, right? It was a right. mortality problem. Right. It's very and frightening. That, so that was a meta-analysis. And what they looked at was multiple studies of PADs. And typically for most, like especially even for this study, you know, you've got six months, you've got a year, and then they do say, even in this study, that they're going to follow the patients out for five years. And they saw that increased mortality signal or that late mortality signal in PAD patients at two and five years. And after that um, paper came out, it was a big deal. There were a lot of people who were discussing back and forth whether it was even, uh, you know, whether they were finding methodological flaws with the study and saying that maybe the analysis wasn't that accurate, but the FDA did look at it and they did think it was concern, but because the primary endpoint at that time was limb patency and not mortality, a lot of patients were lost to follow up. And so the FDA did put out a warning and they said, this, um, you know, needs to be studied further. And um, at this point, there's, you know, there's people pros and cons for or against it. But um, again, it is a different population because we were looking at arterial interventions compared to venous interventions. And then when you're looking at dialysis patients whose mortality is is quite high, then you sort of have to weigh in, you know, what am I getting out of this? And it is much more complicated analysis than just the primary patency of the target lesion. Well, and that kind of leads to our uh, our outcomes. Uh, Sophie, Besides outcomes and power analysis, is there anything else in the methods we need to get to? Is I think that's probably, you know, follow-up was 30 days, three months, and six months. Yeah, so the primary outcome was? Primary outcomes, primary effectiveness, so target lesion, primary patency, which was defined by the freedom from clinically, sorry, I'm reading this, so clinically driven target lesion revascularization or access circuit thrombosis at six months after the index procedure. So that means that uh, means they have to they have to be able to use their access for six months or prov- not have to go to the access center for this specific, particular lesion. Much. That's what they're so, looking for. Doesn't mean that everyone had an angiogram. It's only if it was clinically indicated. So if it's, everything is smooth sailing, you don't bother to go look for trouble. Everybody got an ultrasound, but not everybody they got, got ultrasounds. Right. But yeah. not everybody got an angiogram. Yeah, they all got duplexes at 30 days and six months, and then the angiographic follow-up was only if it was clinically indicated. But the primary outcome is clinically they were able to use the access and they didn't have to get a second intervention. Right. That's the first primary outcome. The second is the primary safety outcome. And how'd they do that? And that was looking at any serious adverse event involving the AV fistula access circuit within the 30 days of the index procedure. Within 30 days. Okay. Vandana, how, how good is ultrasound? It's pretty good. I mean, you know, I'm biased towards ultrasound, but... Hey, you didn't mention that in your conflict of interest, quite honestly. <laughs> not only that. you're the primary author of the study, and now you got no, the no, bias. No, I'm, not, I'm not the author. Who hired this woman? <laughs> but, yeah, so I'm not the author. I'm not even... Hey, at least she calls out the biases. I mean, that's the key. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. okay. But um, I do think, um, you know, ultrasound use is just getting more and more sophisticated as we go along. So when you look at um, ultrasound and hemodialysis access, if you're just looking at that, obviously we know 
for renal and we're talking about volume, but even in hemodialysis access, you could do your interventions under ultrasound as well if you need to, and that avoids contrast and radiation. The, the one issue that there is still controversy about is dialysis access flows. So when you do an ultrasound and you're looking at dialysis access flows, there's a lot of, it's, it's very technique dependent and um, you have to make sure that the angle, the spectral angle is 60 degrees or less. And sometimes that angle of insulation isn't that accurate. So the inter-observer variability and the intra-observer variability are not as sound. And so at this time, I would say fluoroscopy is still the gold standard. But the ultrasound is improving. It also really matter, matters the operator expertise in how you do it. And the interpretation is subject to, you know, you've got to be a little careful how you interpret flow volumes on ultrasound. There are lots of different things that you can look at, but none of them, I would say at this point, even being a proponent of ultrasound, as good as um, angio. It kind of seems similar to how we describe, you know, renal artery Doppler um, to look for... Right. Which artery is that? I'm sorry. Renal artery. Renal Ki- artery. Kidney artery. You guys are killing me. I just want to point out to everybody who's listening, okay? Uh, all three of you. Uh, <laughs> there, I am not on any papers that, it, that, that did the whole renal kidney thing. I'm just a proponent of kidney. I like the kidneys. I actually agree with you, although it's a hard habit to break. I mean, my That's entire... Hard. My entire program is renal. I mean, we are called the, you know, Division of Renal Diseases and Hypertension. Like, it's hard to break. And my clinic's called Uh, the Renal Clinic. That's right. When I walk into the room, it says... Just do it every day for two weeks. That's how you form any habit. And so it's the same for this. And and in in French, it's La Reine, right? And and we are half French in in Canada. So so the French people say Reine. So renal is... I just want to point out, though, we haven't got to it yet, but I'm so itching to say this. 100% of patients did have renal insufficiency, at least based on their table one. (laughs) Yes, very good. I said that. That was so funny. (laughs) That was so funny. (laughs) That is funny. Oh, reviewer two strikes again. Well, how many of the patients had kidney disease? The authors, are, their heads are floating, right? Well, you know, you, you could have a fistula that was placed, never used. And, no, it could. They would know, be. They had, to have 12, they had to have 12 dialysis sessions with the fistula. Yeah. Or they went. Or, oh, they, like the dialysis sessions would have definitely. That'd be bad if one patient had dialysis, had a fistula, and didn't even have kidney disease. Actually, that's not true. We have somebody who gets plasmapheresis. Her, her myasthenia gravis, and she's got an AV fistula. Okay, well, I guess you're right. Well, okay, maybe they could they could definitely be included in the study. Yeah, you you could. Looks like we have reviewer two you. in the podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sophie, did they do a power analysis? They did. So they did a superiority and a non inferiority. Um, so we'll do the superiority. They wanted to provide 92% power for the primary effectiveness endpoint, um, and they were assuming that it was a 60% of the um, drug-coded balloon group and 40% of the standard group would meet that endpoint with an anticipated 15% attrition rate at six months. Um, Simultaneously, they did the non-inferiority, and that was for the primary safety endpoint, and they assumed that 5% would have serious adverse events and 2% attrition rate at 30 days. Swablu, do you have any other comments about the methods? I think she nailed it. Damn straight, I did. <laughs> Samir, I'm sorry, I talked over you. What do you? What no, you no, say? I just you know whenever there's a non-inferiority margin, where did that come from, and was that the right place for it to come from? <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good question because I was just reading about your primer on FJC gang and about the importance of that. So yeah, yeah. So that was that was Mansi Bappert who wrote on uh, on non-inferiority. Mount Sinai fellow here. graduate. Exactly. Yeah, I think she was still at Mount Sinai when she wrote that. Um, but again, you know, you, you don't, what do you do when you expect events to be roughly equal? That's when you have to use a non-inferiority design. How do you show that things are equal, right? It's, if you want to an equivalency trial, you need like a million patients. So you pick some kind of a margin to say, hey, if it's, you know, a little bit worse, we'll accept it. Uh, and that's uh, where that uh, margin comes from. Ideally, you know, you should have a survey. Sounds like two people playing horseshoes. You know, it's like kind of, yeah, I just kind of move it over there, you know, <laughs> see how close you can get. Exactly. And th- this margin is, is where a lot of controversy comes. I don't think so in this paper because, you know, it's a small margin and, and you know, uh, it wasn't that important. Okay, Matt, 
Hit us with some results. Table one. Okay, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. Table one. Figure one. I'm table looking one. to see if anything strikes me. I think there are some important things to to recognize here. Is that so? The racial and ethnic makeup of this study uh, was about 25% white, 30% black, and 37% Asian. The age is about 65 years old, and mostly were men, 60-65%. And I think the everything else seems to be fairly well balanced, except for, interestingly, uh, former smokers were more prevalent in a, a drug-coated balloon arm. So that's really, uh, there's a lot of other supplementary baseline characteristics of like where all the lesions were, and I really uh, had a hard time going through all that. I could highlight a couple things if you want me to, Matt. Sure, go ahead. The majority of about 50%, or at least baseline patient characteristics, were radiocephalic, brachiocephalic 37%, and brachiobacillic, at least of um, where the AB fistula was. And then close to 75% of the participants had already undergone a previous um, peripheral arteriovenous access circuit revascularization. But all all, all pretty similar in, in the groups, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just sort of highlighting it amongst those so you can cut that out, I guess. No, but I think that's, I mean, I think that's just the nature of this disease, right? I mean, we've all seen it in Mm -hmm. our patients as they get a stenosis and they get an angioplasty and a few months later they need another angioplasty. And and what we're really hoping for is an intervention that's going to break that cycle. Right. And then balanced among the actual lesions was about 70% of them were considered restenotic lesions. And then 32% were in the venous outflow and then 25% were in the anastomosis. And I think what you really need to see is that all of this really reflects um, the multinational. So Japan has a higher incidence of radiocephalic fistulas. And so, you know, when you look at either the demographics, when you're looking at the Caucasian versus African-Americans versus Asian, keep in mind that you're also looking at U.S., Japan and New Zealand. And when you're looking at the fistulas, again, radiocephalic is much less common here. I almost never see it. Why Why don't we see it here in the United States? What's the story there? Uh, lots of factors, and I'm not sure you can pinpoint any one, but um, the one thing is when you have a radiocephalic, that's where you want to start. Even if you have an endovascular AV fissure, you really want to start at the wrist with a radiocephalic over a, even an endovascularly created. You want to start distally and move up proximally towards the heart. The issue with radial arteries um, is that there is a very high percentage of diabetics and you have to have, so again, if you want to think of your fistula like, you know, sort of like a tap with a hose attached to it, the tap is the arterial inflow. You've got to have good inflow before you can have a functional access. And we see uh, medial calcifications in diabetics. Some think it might be related to surgical technique as well. There was a very st- nice study out of Canada, Dira Trajan, who did it, where he looked at cephalic heart stenosis and compared radiocephalic to brachiocephalics. And the radiocephalic, because it starts so distally and moves up, the incidence of cephalic heart stenosis was only 2% compared to a much higher percent in brachiocephalics. So when you're looking at radiocephalic fistulas, you've got lower flows that may or may not, depending on the outcome, be useful in ours. And then in Japan, the blood flow during dialysis, you know, people sort of dialyze for a longer period of time, like six hours, but their blood flows are 250, 300. While here, everybody wants to be sort of the mentality is I want to get on and I want to get off. And we push people with 400, 450, 500 blood flows, but we shorten the time. And it's sometimes harder to achieve that. With That's obviously post-primary failure with a radiocephalic. And otherwise, if you have a good radiocephalic, I've had patients who have radiocephalic fistulas for 30 plus years, and they don't even want to transplant because they're so happy their access has never had a problem. So just going back radiocephalic, you I do think- You could keep your access the- while you have your transplant though. Well, um, they don't even want to go through the process because for them, I, I, and again, I'm biased, but I really feel... Another bias. That's the third one. Yeah, that's, I'm biased. But I, really, really and I, I don't know you know this, but uh, here we have a modified baseball rule. It's two strikes, you're out. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not going to add the bias, but I really feel that any patient's idea about dialysis comes from how their access functions. If they have no problem with their access, they don't mind dialysis as much. If they have continuous problems with their accesses, they really, you know. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to say I have any biases. Can, 
So one other thing I want to point out, just I know there's a lot of errors in papers I've written, so I'm not throwing any stones here, but it does say that the cause of dialysis for a few patients was lupus neuropathy. Just pointing. <laughs> <laughs> So, I missed that. Yeah. I did right. too. <laughs> okay, so let's get to the results. Bottom line is there was a big difference in the standard uh, balloon arm of the trial compared to the, uh, the drug-coated balloon. And so 80% of patients had, uh, had a, their lesion was still patent. Uh, their, their graph was still working at the end of the study period were about 60% in a standard balloon arm. So that's a pretty big difference. And I don't even think you need a p-value for that. You know, you can, you can see it. And the interesting thing is uh, New England Journal of Medicine and most journals usually have an inlet and in, to show the entire, uh, you know, zero to hundred percent. You don't need it for this. I mean, it's very obvious that there was a big difference here. There are a lot of other, you know, secondary analyses and, and such. And I think when you have such a big effect in the primary analysis, the secondary, you know, there's differences there as well. Obviously, I think that's that's going to be there. But one of the things that I think is very important is the safety analysis. But since this is fairly short duration, six months, the real uh, safety issue likely occurs much later on. And so I think it's hard to look at, at these issues and, and know like sort of what that means. So is there anything about uh, the safety that we should really think about, Vandana? I think we just want to watch because it's the same drug. Um, you know, just need to watch out for long term. So looking at two-year mortality and five-year mortality. At six months, I'm really not sure that we can find anything or anything worth commenting on at this time. Because they both have a balloon, and most of the issues are going to come from the actual procedure itself and not from the drug that's being eluded. And that, that is something that you're going to see later on, uh, years down the road, for instance. You know, I do have a question, though, because one of the key secondary endpoints was the primary patency of the entire dialysis circuit. Mm-hmm meaning um, areas that, of course, weren't treated by the actual balloon. But even then, there was um, a positive signal where 73% in the drug-coated balloon group compared to 48% um, had a better had a better patency then. So you wonder, like, is there some more systemic or drug process happening to the remainder of the circuit? And if that's happening just to the circuit, what's happening systemically? And I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm extending this out too far, but I'm just wondering, you know, that seems seems like it might be a quote-unquote good outcome, but p- perhaps it's potentially a sign of something or a, a harbor of bad news in the future. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, we just have to wait and see because no one really fully, I think, understands the whole mechanism as well when you're just taking a balloon and inflating it for like a few seconds. How are we seeing results or consequences so far out. So I think that's a great point. What happens, you know, in these these are accesses that cannot be used or they're just not working well enough. So like if you didn't do anything, would it be 0% patency? Is that Are the accesses are can you use these accesses or is it just not working that well? You mean like before the procedure? Exactly. So we're saying here 50% of leisure, of these accesses don't work at all? Is that what the access circuit primary? It's fifty percent stenosis. So there's some signal of of um, dysfunction, and it's via a number of things: decreased blood flow, elevated venous pressures, KT over V that's lower than it's supposed to be. There's a number of them. The majority of them were decreased blood flow, elevated venous pressures, and abnormal physical findings. I think they excluded anyone that wasn't fine. So if it was a thrombectomy, they excluded that. So if there was a patient who had had a prior thrombectomy on that particular access, or if it wasn't functional, it's only the patients with elevated venous pressures or prolonged bleeding after dialysis, low KT over V, any of those signs that you would see with a functional stenotic lesion. So with the balloon itself, you're you're at least getting, looks like at six months, um, 60% of those are still, the, the lesion is, is okay. And right. 80%... Um, with a drug-coated balloon. And so if you look at the KDOKI guidelines, the recommendation is your goal for patency at six months should be 50%. And so even the control arm was above that goal. Do you think that's partly because they had a lot of people from Japan? Well, no, I'm not sure. I'm sure part of it is the follow-up. 
So I feel like if you're sort of following these people up regularly, perhaps that's part of it. And I mean, I, I really, I think that part of it actually, my instinct was to say no, but maybe that's part of it too. Okay. And it would be nice to see how many of these people are, you know, from the U, like if they actually sorted them out by country. I think with the closer follow-up, you are referring to the uh, to Matt's favorite Hawthorne effect. Is that just because like you're, you're watching them closely, you know? The yeah. People are going to get better care. Um, yeah, exactly. What would be the standard of care after doing this procedure on a patient? Uh, how quickly would you follow it up? Uh, or you just sort of let things go and, and do the normal kind of mm-hmm. surveillance? So in the U.S., um, it's really, um, as an interventionist, you should not be calling the patient back. for. So typically you would assume, right, if we are nephrologists and we are in the clinic, if someone presents with an elevated creatinine, I want to see them back after three months or six months or what have you. Um, as an interventionist, they need to be referred from their center for, um, for any intervention if needed, if they have problems. It's considered Medicare fraud to actually call the patient back. If you write in your note, uh, come to clinic in three months for re-evaluation of the access, that's um, that's really not allowed. You just go right you to have clinic. to, yeah, you really- Yeah, so, but in, the, but in this clinical <laughs> study, they, they look at it 60 and 120 days with- um, With the ultrasound, so- Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Anything is that, that you is don't- Is that something that's done routinely or is that just in a clinical trial setting? Just in a clinical trial. So routinely what you would do is your dialysis unit, your- access coordinators, your nurses, your techs would be evaluating the patient. And of course, you'd be getting your monthly labs, like you're getting KTOVs on all your patients, which is actually a really late sign. What would happen on the patient's sign would be increased venous pressures on the machine, prolonged bleeding after dialysis, those kind of things, you know, aneurysmal formation would be another late sign. So when you start seeing these, so we have protocols, if somebody is, you know, bleeds uh, longer than their average, uh, for over two times, then we refer them for an ang- angiogram and then evaluate. Two strikes, two times. Two strikes. I'm looking. At, Everything is two strikes. I'm looking at the Kaplan-Meier curves, and there is no difference between these curves at 60 days. All the separation happens after two months. Is, is that surprising to you? Uh, with is, is that when we start to see well, it's not- the first time they do the the look is two months, so that's why. Well, if you actually take a look at the stair steps on the Kaplan-Meier, it looks like these people are failing. There's not a big stair step at six months and, and – I mean, at two months and six months. like Yeah, I mean, but, you know, before that, you're probably – If they clot, if they clot, they clot they're going to be sent to the access center if they clot on dialysis, right? It's just – Yeah, and you're looking at them after one month, not two months, though. I thought it was – 30 days, 30 days, three months, months and, and six, six months. months. Yeah. So the angioplasty – the plain old balloon angioplasty seems to work well for the first couple of months. And this drug-eluting, or not drug-eluting, but the drug coding mm-hmm. seems to really have a more of a downstream effect after that. Mm-hmm. I'm looking back at the uh, Kaplan-Meier curve on the C. Jason Teratola paper. And it's very, um, and they go out to 180 days. And it actually do get a separation, mm-hmm. but it's just, but it's uh, not quite as dramatic. And there's a little bit of a crossover that occurs like at 60 days as well, but still really good for 60 days and then sort of uh, separates out. Yeah. Uh, but on that, uh, the uh, a bunch of discussion during the chat was on the cost, right? So I think uh, Moni Vasse pointed out that it's like seven to 10 times. These balloons are about seven to 10 times more expensive. So um, what does that mean? Seven to 10 times? Like what's the times what? Uh, times the standard balloon, so the exactly, the drug like coding. Yeah, I, I don't. Twenty bucks. Don't remember. I'd be just. <laughs> we don't know how much shooting cost in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could never. I mean, I, I wasn't very good with that stuff anyway, so yeah. I wouldn't right. know. We have no idea what what a regular. But it's balloon a huge. Exp- it's a huge delta in when you use these balloon coated stents. Right. That's interesting. But I think what they're trying to see is if if it really does make a difference, and then if you're not, let's say, you would have done two interventions or three interventions in the time that you've done this one versus not having an access thrombos and then CVC placement and the consequences of a CVC placement. Does it really? So just like when people did the TPA analysis, you know, you just have to see when you put everything into the bucket, is it really a cost savings or not? And that's sometimes a little harder to gauge. 
And they'll, they have that data for this, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll have another paper that's the economic... Yeah, yeah. The, um, uh, Rob uh, Lukestein, who's the PI, the first author, he mentioned they're, they're doing that analysis and he was sort of saying that yeah, he thinks it is. Uh, so I'm just looking back uh, for the peripheral arterial disease. It's like a hundred bucks for an ordinary catheter, uh, balloon, sorry. So this would be like, you know, 700 to 1000 bucks. Wow. Okay. But that's still, right now, wow. we don't know what the cost is going to be because this is for the approval. So you don't know what they're going to price it at. And it might be lower than that. Absolutely. And what is the price of a functioning access, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's the whole thing, right? Putting it all together. And what is the price of the tree bark? They may become endangered soon. Yeah, true. Kind of a joke, like but uh, not really. So, you know, what's the bottom it- line, Vandana? What do you, I mean, like, we're definitely not interventional nephrologists here. Mm-hmm. Is this, are you excited? Is this a game changer? What's, what do you think? I'm cautiously optimistic. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a, um, you know, it's a positive, it's an RCT. It's a positive uh, signal that we're seeing. And I just would have to, again, like you all pointed out, make sure that it's safe for the patient in the long term and make sure that um, the economic implications are what it is. Like it's really beneficial to the patient in the long term and um, it's cost effective to the system. But I think it's a good study. It's well done. And um, having um, different patient populations makes it stronger. It would be nice to see a sub-analysis of each uh, separate patient population as well. Do you think there's ever going to be a study on patients who haven't matured or failed to mature? I mean, they oftentimes have stenoses or a study on patients with these central venous stenoses. So again, yeah, that would be completely different subsets. Like when you have the failure to mature, most of the time it's an inflow issue. These patients all had outflow issues. And with the inflow issues, um, the problem is either with the artery or the juxta anastomotic, which is two centimeters within the artery. And so you're moving from a clearly defined venous circulation to an arterial or sort of juxtaposing the arterial circulation. And the vessel sizes are much, much smaller at the anastomosis. So again, uh, you wouldn't be using, you know, a size eight or a size six or a size 10 balloon. You'd be looking at the threes, the fours and the fives. And so um, definitely, and then on the central side, you're looking at 12s and 14s. You know, so again, uh, very different, um, each each little area sort of treated very differently and different outcomes based on what you see. And so for in interventional, there's a lot of stuff going on for primary failure, where people are even trying to look at making the anastomosis more laminar and using devices that allow you to streamline how the artery connects to the vein and um, using surgical external or internal connecting devices like a VASQ. And um, so there's a lot of research going on in that field as well. So looking at the um, uh, table, uh, the it's sort of the last page of the supplement. Um, it seems, uh, again, I'm reading too much into subgroups, but um, it seems that uh, for uh, the difference between the two arms for U.S. patients was about 16%, whereas uh, the difference for outside U.S. was like 32%, was like so these balloons seem to work, you know, twice as well in Japanese mm-hmm. or, or New Zealand uh, patients for whatever it's worth. We're ready for some tubular secretions. Sophie, you said you had something pretty interesting for tubular secretions. What do you got? I don't know if it's interesting. Well, we'll tell but... you. <laughs> <laughs> so my last couple of times I've been on service, medicine teams have increasingly been using point-of-care ultrasound, which I actually think is great. I'm not good at it, um, but... But they have been putting it on everybody's um, internal jugular. And literally, because they put it on their internal jugular and they say they don't have a dilated internal jugular, they feel like they don't need diuresis. They don't need to be diuresis. They don't have cardiorenal. Literally, everything else is screaming cardiorenal to me. You know, they've got the creatinine that's up. They've got this azotemia that's dramatically out of proportion. They've got edema up the wazoo. They're not reporting edema on their um, on their exam, and then they won't listen to me when I'm like begging them to diurese them. And then finally, they ask cardiology to do a right heart cath, and, and it finally says that they're overloaded and they diurese them. This has happened to me repeatedly, and I don't know what's going on. But then they say, "Yeah, but but our point of care ultrasound told us this." And I don't know if anybody else has experienced this, but it's driving me mad. 
I'm really, I, we, we I have actually got really upset about it. <laughs> if we only had someone who knew something about point of call ultrasound. <laughs> I, was a friend. I was feeling, I was feeling so bad. I felt like I spoke so much and I should have just, okay, well, I, I mean, I really think that the volume assessment by point of care is really so involved. It's not looking at any one vessel and it should never be the IJ anyway. It should be the IVC if they're looking at it. And um, you really have to look at the IVC. You have to look at, um, the lungs and see, you know, the bee lines and count them all. And then really look at the heart too. If you have one of those uh, small, like the butterfly or something, you yeah. can't. They're not make... doing this. Is that, is that the thing <laughs> in the chest? Yeah, that's the thing Got in it. the chest. Okay. But I mean, that's why um, we, oh, isn't it? we at ASDIN are actually putting forth criteria to say, if you're going to start using ultrasounds in assessment. So again, you want to look at ultrasounds and say, and maybe this can be my filtered thing, so I don't have to say anything else. I'll just say this. <laughs> but um, so I, I, I'll just say that, that I think um, where um, I'm really excited about ASDIN moving towards um, certifying people for ultrasounds, we've always done it for renal. And we are adding hemodialysis access and we are adding volume. And we have written the criteria. You want to look at ultrasound as saying, okay, well, I want to use it as an adjunct to my physical exam. And, you know, my it's the new stethoscope or whatever. And you don't need to be certified for that, but you really need to know how to do it properly. And um, the other time is when you're actually going to do a complete exam and sort of start billing for it. And that's a different scenario. So we are identified all of those we have put together the criteria and we sort of uh, finessing them before we release them. But it's really critical when we start using new things to make sure that we have a standard that we maintain. You really have to have stringent quality criteria. And I totally get it if somebody is doing half the job and then feel like they know what's going on and they sort of you know put the physical exam by the wayside. This is not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be an adjunct. It's supposed to make you a better internist, a better nephrologist, a better you know assessor of volume status or whatever you want to call it. But you've got to be able to make sure that you outline what it is you need to know and so that you know you can do it properly. So it's like a driver's license in a sense. Exactly. Do whatever you want after you know how to do it. Yeah, I think that they're at that level in their training. I mean, it was kind of like when I was a second year resident and I was like, man, I got this. And it's not until I got burned and I was like, oh, I don't got this. And then I just had a lot more humility going forward. And I feel like they're at that level. They're like, yep, we got our little ultrasound. We're going to put it on every IJ and we're going to know people's volume exam. But it just drives me absolutely bonkers because it's really delaying care. And sometimes we are getting way behind from an edema perspective. And I'm just sitting there sort of like stomping my feet and throwing a little fit um, and, you know, looking kind of ridiculous and not making much headway. And then afterwards kind of saying, I told you so. But that's got to be sweet, right? That moment of I told you so, isn't that <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome? <laughs> yeah. And after a while, though, it's like, come on. Yeah. It's the excitement of the new tools. Almost, I think a lot of medical schools are giving their students ultrasounds and um, they're so inexpensive that they can afford to do that and it's just it's that new you know thing and they'll get better at it matt um, matt why don't you how how, how is nefjc well, looking on the uh on the on yeah it's itunes reviews we we're we're five out of five we've got 66 ratings 66 that's ratings that's not bad so let's go through a few a few of these so uh this one is called um joel's dad <laughs> Exclamation mark. <laughs> no relation. <laughs> and no relation at all. And it's from uh, July of this year. And it says, uh, finally, a fun podcast for kidney nerds. I'm so happy to find this podcast so I can catch up on recent developments in the nephrology in nephrology while driving to work. Thank you, Joel's dad. We really appreciate that. J.R. Montfort. That is like, oh my God, I can't believe they didn't take my name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's called Dr. M, okay, which I thought was Michigan. Oh, Dr. Sorry, M. Enough. Yeah. So J.R. Montford, who is someone that Sophie might know. Hey, that's my buddy. Yeah, uh, he, he dropped a little something on here. And so uh, give us his uh, address so we can pay him off. Um, <laughs> excellent nephrology in a podcast rapper. Timely top, and this is rapper with the WR. Oh, uh, timely topics. Great hosts. It's a win for medical education targeted at medical students, residents, fellows, and beyond. Enjoy the morning with a caffeine jolt of superb renalism. Love that. <laughs> Thank you. 
John, John wrote that? He's yeah. totally just brown nosing yeah. you guys right now. Uh, Bill AG, uh, which I heard Swap's dad's name is Bill, um, left this uh, really nice five-star rating as well. Thank you, Bill. Um, so he says, thank you. Uh, this is a great service to those of us uh, who don't have access to a regular academic discussion or nephrology, a.k.a. renal grand rounds. So uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, we are very appreciative if you leave uh, something. And uh, there's a shout out we wanted to give to Pranav Garamella, who has really been giving us a lot of good pu- publicity on on Twitter and already is talking about this. So we're really Happy if anyone leaves us uh, a little nugget of renal goodness. Uh, like I said, if you say the word renal, I will say it over and over again on air. Yeah, but it really helps the podcast if you if we get uh, ratings and reviews. Uh, it's it, when it, I look at a new podcast, one of the first things I do is I kind of take a look at their iTunes page and see how many people have ranked it, uh, rated it, just to kind of get a sense of its uh, of it, of its appeal. And, and that's, I'm going to give my tubular secretion really quick. Okay, it's not going to be long, but my tubular secretion is something I'm really looking forward to at ASN Kidney Week. Is someone we all know is receiving a big award, the ASN Distinguished Clinical Service Award to none other than Vandana Nair. And so congratulations. We wish we could celebrate in person, but we're going to celebrate on the podcast. So congratulations. Yeah, that's outstanding. Thank you, guys. No, no. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's all you guys. It's not me. So thank you. Not even. You have done, I mean, obviously, you know everything there is to know about interventional nephrology. You taught all of us so much. Thank you for coming on. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. I was so like, I didn't know what it was going to be like. And you have to teach me how to hear my first podcast. I've never, I've never listened to any of them. (laughs) 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 Well, you know, everything. you're right there. All right, I'm going to share my tubular secretion. Um, so I wanted to put up a shameless plug for a ASN on-demand special session that I'm one of the moderators for. It's called Embracing Technology Nephrology 2.0. Kind of feels meta given the virtual format of the meeting this year. But without going into some of the details, um, we have four talks that are each uh, 25 minutes long with five minutes for question that will cover online educational tools, how social media is used in interventional nephrology, how social media contributes to nephrology on the global platform, and then finally uh, talk to kind of wrap everything up that's titled The New Age Physician and Leveraging Social Media. I previewed the talks. They're all excellent, and I think it'll be a really worthwhile listen for anyone that's interested in learning a bit more about nephrology and innovating. Who are the speakers? Um, So the first speaker is uh, Tim Yao. The second speaker is Aisha Sheikh. The third one is Arvind Kanjivaram. And the fourth is Kimberly Manning. Oh, wow. Oh, some real star power there. Yeah, I got connections. So, <laughs> Swap, you got something? Yeah, so a uh, couple of things. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the late-breaking trial, of course. I don't, But we don't know which ones are going to be there. That's not been announced uh, yet. That's not Fidelio. been announced yet. Yeah, Fidelio, I guess. Um, and uh, again, you know, uh, along Samira's uh, line of thinking, I will plug uh, a session for which I'm moderating on, along with Sandra Taylor from Mayo on uh, hypertension on hard to control hypertension. And it's a, it's a lot of fun because uh, like Samira mentioned, we have already previewed the, the talks. Uh, so we have got Tara Chang from Stanford, John Funder uh, from Australia, who's got his own Wikipedia page. Um, he's got a Ray Wikipedia Townsend. page? Yeah, yeah, he's an endocrinologist. Uh, he very, uh, he's got a fascinating, provocative talk. Uh, Ray Townsend, who's... So we could uh, add to his Wikipedia page that he once gave a talk uh, that at was... At ASN. At ASN with Swapnil was uh, was uh, moderating it. <laughs> I think I think we need to do that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Ray Townsend from UPenn, uh, who's uh, also mentioning how Netflix can improve your blood pressure. and, uh, and That's his study. topic? Is Netflix and blood pressure? No, <laughs> no, no. It's, it's oh, about how to, how to drug therapy uh, and how to build a good regimen. Uh, but I've seen the talk, so I, you know he's, he's he builds a Netflix in there. It's it's uh, very funny. Okay. Uh, so he's a, good, know, he's trying, a great speaker. Townsend's, yeah, he's a Townsend's great outstanding. Speaker. Felix uh, Felix Mafood, who's talking on, he's a hot shot uh, denervation guy who's still going to talk on device therapy. And this is a simu live session, so Friday at ten thirty Eastern in the morning. I hope. Uh, what does that mean, simu live? So simu live means it's recorded uh, before, uh, but it's not released until ten thirty and. And at 10.30, everyone can watch it. And the authors will be, sorry, the presenters will be there in the chat 
uh, like what with the AHA hypertension, right? Where uh, you can ask questions live and they can That's answer. The, the one thing I would say about that is a lot of people are not ready for Twitter chats. And it kind of turns into a little bit of a Twitter chat. You know, everyone's just sort of commenting and, and going on. And, and so uh, I feel like it is kind of a weird feeling. Like, shouldn't you be talking? Wait, you're talking. Why are you Why are you in here talking to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, the thing with the uh, AHA was that the moderators didn't have any role, right? So here uh, they are making, the ASN is making the moderators also record five minutes before and the other moderator to do a wrap-up uh, recording for the end, which is kind of cool. So, you know, we feel like we are doing something. Uh, yeah, I was a moderator. I, I, I know, yeah. I did not know it. I just like, so I'm just here watching it with everyone else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mine is a live session. Like, it's all live. So I'm just hoping that my internet access doesn't... Oh, you're like live, live? Or? Live, live. What, yeah. Now, which one? Now, the, uh, you're, you're speaking. What's, what are you talking about? Ultrasounds. Ultrasounds. I'm doing, uh, yeah, cases, um, renal cases on ultrasounds. You should have, so you should have Sophie ask some questions because I think she's got some experience there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm not. I'm not doing volume. I'm just doing kidneys. Yeah. <laughs> just kidneys. I'll still be a plant if you want. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you the questions. Uh, Pacific Northwest, <laughs> you specifically when you talk about plants. Uh, I think it's volume overloaded. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking at that SVC and uh, or that. You ultrasound that <laughs> Oh man. 